If you love the Murder Minute app and the Murder Minute podcast, we have good news. For more true crime anytime, download the Himalaya app and subscribe to Murder Minute for ad-free early episodes and killer bonus content. Our first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. What are you waiting for? Download Himalaya and subscribe to Murder Minute. Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the murder of Helen Jewett. But first, your true crime headlines. An Indiana woman was found guilty of five felonies, including reckless homicide, for a 2018 crash that claimed the lives of three children and seriously injured a fourth child. 24-year-old Alyssa Shepard faces a maximum sentence of 21 and a half years for the October 2018 accident, which claimed the lives of a nine-year-old girl and her six-year-old twin brothers. A fourth child, an 11-year-old boy, was seriously injured. Shepard struck the children with her vehicle as they were crossing the road to board their school bus. During her trial, Shepard claimed that she did not realize that the large vehicle she was passing was a school bus and that she did not realize that the flashing lights meant that she needed to stop. By the time she realized her error, it was too late. Prosecutors told the jury that it was Shepard's reckless action that caused the death of these children and highlighted her lack of braking, as well as the testimony of another driver who was on the road that morning. That driver testified that while the road was dark, she could clearly see the bus's lights and stop arm. She testified that she slowed down as soon as she saw the bus, but watched as Shepard's vehicle continued, without slowing, striking the children as they crossed the road. The families of the victims told reporters that they were satisfied with the verdict and frustrated with what they perceived as a lack of remorse shown by Shepard. Shepard and her family quickly left the courthouse after the verdict was handed down. She will remain free on bail until her sentencing on December 18th. A suitcase found in a Colorado dumpster last week contained the body of an adult woman. And now her son and his wife are in custody, facing murder charges. Police were called to the dumpster after a report of a suspicious suitcase inside. They found a body inside the large suitcase, later identified as 58-year-old Maria Agnes Cuevas Garcia. Surveillance cameras from the location captured a man taking the suitcase out of his trunk and throwing it into the dumpster, then driving away. Police released the surveillance videos to the media and received numerous tips that led them to their suspect, 36-year-old Anthony Cuevas, who is the son of the deceased woman. Anthony Cuevas was arrested on suspicion of first-degree murder, and his wife, 36-year-old Melanie Cuevas, faces a possible charge of criminal impersonation. A judge has sealed the case file against Anthony Cuevas, citing the ongoing investigation into the crime. A Northern California woman who killed her 14-year-old sister in a 2017 car crash that she live-streamed on Instagram has been arrested again just three weeks after she was released on parole. 20-year-old Abdulia Sanchez was behind the wheel when she live-streamed the fatal crash that claimed her sister's life 
in 2017. For that accident, she was convicted of driving under the influence and gross vehicular manslaughter, for which she received a sentence of six years and four months in prison. With time served and credit for good behavior, Sanchez was granted parole in September of this year. She had served two years and two months of her sentence. Last week, Sanchez again crashed her car, this time after attempting to flee pursuing Stockton police officers. A man who was in the vehicle with Sanchez ran from the car and was able to escape, but Sanchez was arrested at the scene. She was driving with a revoked driver's license, and police found a loaded handgun in her vehicle. She is being held on $300,000 bail and is now facing six new felony charges. She will return to court in early November. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the murder of Helen Jewett. But first, a quick break. Do you experience stress or have anxiety? Do you have trouble sleeping at least once a week? You might after you listen to this podcast. Or maybe you suffer from chronic pain, like I do. Feels has a better way to make you feel better. Feels Premium CBD will help you keep your head clear and feel your best. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and feel the difference in minutes. I've tried so many CBD products, but Feels is really the best. But if you're new to CBD, don't worry. Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, no hangover, no addiction. And Feels offers a free CBD hotline and text message support to walk you through it. Join the Feels community today to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com mm, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash mm. Have you thought about talking to someone, but are unsure of where to start? It's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's a truly affordable option, and Murder Minute listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code MURDERMINUTE. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started now. Go to betterhelp.com slash MURDERMINUTE. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Murder of Helen Jewett. Helen Jewett was born 
Dorcas Doyen to a working-class family in Temple, Maine, on October 18, 1813. Her father was an alcoholic, and her mother died when she was very young. By the age of 13, Dorcas Doyen was orphaned and began working as a servant girl in the home of Chief Justice Nathan Weston of the Maine Supreme Judicial Court. Justice Weston made sure that the girl received a good education while under his care, and over the next four years, Dorcas Doyen grew into a beautiful, intelligent, and assertive young woman. But at age 17, after an affair with a banker turned into a scandal, the teenager was dismissed from her position and forced to leave home. At age 18, Dorcas Doyen moved first to Portland, Maine, then to Boston, and finally, in 1831, to New York City, where she began working as a prostitute under the name Helen Jewett. And it wasn't long before Helen Jewett was noticed. Her beauty and intelligence set her apart, and she was soon recruited by a woman named Rosina Townsend to work in what she called her boarding house, a fashionable brothel located in what is now New York City's Tribeca. Just a short jaunt from City Hall, Rosina's boarding house, a three-story federal-style townhouse located at 41 Thomas Street, was home to nine young women who offered their companionship to politicians, lawyers, journalists, and wealthy businessmen. The opulently decorated townhouse was actually two structures combined into one, with twin staircases that met on a second-floor landing, two large skylights, a large drawing room, and a beautifully landscaped garden. There, Helen Jewett transformed herself into a highly paid courtesan. The same intelligence, assertiveness, and sexual boldness that had caused Dorcas Doyen so much trouble in Maine was now earning Helen Jewett a comfortable living at Rosina's. She even hired her own maid. In Helen's room hung a painting of her favorite poet, Lord Byron. In her closet hung expensive gowns and jewelry. A collection of theatrical sketches were pinned over her mantle. A desk held pens, ink, and high-quality writing paper, tools of her trade. And Helen had her own small library of books by all of her favorite romantics, as well as subscriptions to literary journals like the Knickerbocker. Patricia Klein-Cohen, author of The Murder of Helen Jewett, described how Helen's education and love for reading was put to use in her new role. She maintained a select clientele and solicited her patrons by engaging in a literary correspondence with many of them, writing genteel letters of emotion and sometimes relatively frank sexual assertiveness. She offered 
maybe insisted is the better word, that her clients play a game of love and romance with her. Instead of sex without obligation, as commercial sex can often be, Jewett strung along her young men with letters of courtship, gifts, and shared emotional intimacy. Imaginary romance was what she sold for a living. One of Helen's most frequent callers was a young man aged only 19 named Richard Robinson. Born in Connecticut in 1818, Richard Robinson moved to New York City as a teenager and found employment in a dry goods store. Richard and Helen had met one evening outside of a theater when he was just 17. The theaters of the 1830s in New York were just as beautiful and celebrated as the Broadway of today. Elegantly dressed courtesans and mistresses who had an escort for the evening sat in the first and second tiers. The third tier was reserved for unescorted prostitutes. Sometimes, theater managers gave third-tier prostitutes special discounted rates, or even free admission, to attract male theatergoers. Men visited the third tier to set up appointments for later in the evening. And although everyone knew this was common practice, and prostitution was not illegal at the time, the theaters still designated special entrances and staircases for the third-tier prostitutes so that they could come and go more discreetly. Described by one of her more frequent callers as one of the most splendidly dressed women that went to the third tier of the theater, Helen Jewett attended the theater several nights a week. It was on one such evening in 1834 that 17-year-old Richard Robinson noticed a man attacking a beautiful young woman outside of one such discreet theater entrances. The young man made short work of the thug, and Helen was so impressed by his heroism that she handed Richard her calling card. Richard Robinson, who, like many men, went by an alias when visiting prostitutes, soon began visiting Helen Jewett under the name Frank Rivers, with increasing regularity. The passionate, complicated, and tumultuous romance that followed their fateful meeting would come to an abrupt end one snowy night in April, just two years later, at 41 Thomas Street. Around 1 a.m. on April 10, 1836, after Rosina Townsend thought that she heard the last visitor come in for the evening, she went to bed. Shortly thereafter, across the hall from Helen Jewett's room upstairs, Marie Stevens woke when she heard a thump, followed by a strange moan. Marie rose out of her bed and listened at her door, in case one of the other girls needed help with a drunk client. She listened as the door across the hall opened, then closed, and the sound of footsteps walked away down the hall. 
Marie slowly cracked open her door to look and saw a man in a cloak go down the stairs carrying a lamp. Assuming that Helen's visitor was simply leaving, Marie returned to bed. Then, Rosina Townsend awoke to what sounded like someone trying to get out of the front door, which she always kept locked from the inside. Like Marie, she assumed that one of the gentlemen were simply on their way out, and she too went back to sleep. Around 3 a.m., Rosina Townsend rose to make her rounds and check on the girls upstairs. She noticed a small lamp burning on a table in the hallway and recognized it as Helen's. Rosina picked it up to return it to her room when she felt a chill. The back door was wide open. She closed it, locked it, and made her way upstairs to return the lamp and look in on the girls. When she reached Helen's room, she knew that something was wrong. Helen Jewett's door stood slightly open, and Rosina Townsend noticed a smell. When she pushed open the door, black smoke poured out of the room and into the hall. Helen Jewett's bed was on fire. Fire, 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 she cried. The girls quickly rushed out into the hall as their gentlemen callers stumbled out of their rooms in various states of undress. Rather than sticking around to help, the men slipped out of the house to save their own skin and avoid being caught up as witnesses. Rosina Townsend threw open a window and yelled down the street for help. As she waited, she called to Helen to get her up from bed, but Helen was unresponsive. Soon, the night watchman came, the only help one could expect in the 1830s, as organized fire and police departments were still in their infancy. The night watchman, Rosina Townsend, and the girls frantically worked together to extinguish the blaze before it could spread to any other rooms. When the fire was finally out and the smoke had cleared, they looked upon Helen Jewett, laying dead in her bed. Her white nightgown was burned almost completely. One arm was raised above her head. The other lay on her chest. The left side of her body was charred from the fire, and she was bleeding profusely from the head. Helen Jewett had been struck with a hatchet three times as she slept, and it was immediately apparent that the fire had been set in an attempt to make her death look like an accident. The night watchman asked Mrs. Townsend if she knew who had been in Helen's room that night. She did. Earlier in the evening, Rosina had brought champagne to the room and saw the back of a young man that she had seen with Helen many times. He called himself Frank Rivers. 
Helen had told Mrs. Townsend not to admit one of her Saturday night regulars, that she would be visited by another caller instead. Most Saturday nights, Helen entertained a man known as Bill Easy. But on April 9th, she told Mrs. Townsend not to send Easy to her. Instead, between 9 and 10 o'clock, a man arrived covering his face with a cloak. Rosina immediately recognized him as Frank Rivers. Mrs. Townsend told the night watchman everything she could remember about the night. The back garden where Mrs. Townsend believed Frank Rivers had exited through the back door was immediately searched for evidence. A blood-stained hatchet was found, tied with a piece of broken twine. On the other side of a recently whitewashed fence, they found the cloak. The night watchman asked Mrs. Townsend where they might find this Frank Rivers. One of the girls chimed in. Frank Rivers worked for a merchant on Maiden Lane in a dry goods shop, and she knew the address. In the early hours of Sunday, April 10th, the watchman paid a visit to the business. They soon learned that the alias Frank Rivers belonged to 19-year-old Richard P. Robinson, who resided at a boarding house at 42 Day Street. Their next stop. A pound on the door awoke a servant girl who directed the citizen officers to the young man's shared room. Richard Robinson and his roommate were abruptly awoken. This is an odd business, said Richard, half-dressed in bed and seemingly unperturbed by the sudden presence of the authorities in his room accusing him of murder. They ordered him to get up. They were taking him to the police station. As Richard rose from his bed and put on a coat, they noticed a white mark on his trousers and remembered the whitewashed fence. Before taking him to the police station, they took Richard back to the scene of the crime. At the time, this was a common practice. Confronting a killer with their victim sometimes extracted a confession. This was not the case with Richard Robinson. They led him up to Helen's charred room and forced him to look upon her half-burned and bloody body on the bed. Officers were disturbed by his lack of distress or emotion at the horrifying sight of his lover brutally murdered. When asked if he had killed Helen Jewett, Richard Robinson responded arrogantly, I most certainly did not. Richard Robinson insisted that he had been in his room that night. His roommate seemed to corroborate this story, though he wasn't certain of the actual time that Richard came home. Richard added, Do you think I would blast my brilliant prospects by so ridiculous an act? I am a young man of only 19 years of age yesterday, 
with most brilliant prospects. The authorities were not convinced. Richard P. Robinson was arrested for the murder of Helen Jewett and taken into custody. News of the murder quickly spread, and public interest in the story drew reporters to 41 Thomas Street before Helen Jewett's body had even been moved. The media frenzy that followed would change journalism forever. Up until now, newspapers had written little about crime, and brutal murder was surprisingly infrequent in 1830s New York City. The previous year had seen only seven homicides, which drew little interest. But news of the brutal hatchet murder of a well-known prostitute by her lover appeared to be good business. And there was heavy competition in the rapidly expanding newspaper trade at the time. The sensational story soon hit the penny press, equivalent to the tabloid papers of today. Readers couldn't get enough. The Sun wrote, It seems impossible a loop can be found whereupon to hang a doubt that the life of Miss Jewett was taken by any other hand but his. For the first time in American history, journalists followed the murder case closely, writing a seductive narrative of sex, romance, and vice. With little regard to journalistic integrity or facts. Each newspaper accused the others of falsifying witness accounts to sell papers, which, of course, only sold more papers. Historian and author Patricia Klein-Cohen remarked in her book, quote, Historians of journalism have long heralded the Jewett murder as the event that inaugurated a sex and death sensationalism in news reporting, a style of journalism that is utterly familiar to us now. The New York Herald and its editor, James Gordon Bennett, sometimes referred to today as the man who made the news, was chief among them. Bennett was a pioneer and an innovator whose coverage of the Jewett case set the blueprint for how stories would be reported thereafter. Up until now, newspapers primarily served the interests of merchants and political parties. But Bennett thought the press was boring. So to increase sales and readership, he set about to deliver exciting real news just moments after it happened. Bennett himself went to view the body of Helen Jewett at the crime scene and reported to the public what he saw, first person. Quote, Slowly I began to discover the lineaments of the corpse as one would the beauties of a statue of marble. It was the most remarkable sight I ever beheld. Not a vein was to be seen. The body looked as white, as full, as polished as pure Parian marble. 
he went on to describe the sensual contours of her body in detail, how it stiffened with rigor mortis, how the fire had bronzed her skin along the left side like an antique statue. The perfect figure, the exquisite limbs, the fine face, the full arms, the beautiful bust, Bennett reported. All, all surpassing in every respect the Venus de Medici. The public was shocked and the New York Herald became the most widely read newspaper in the country. On June 2nd, 1836, less than two months after the murder, the five-day trial began. Thousands of spectators assembled in and around the courthouse. For the first time, journalists from cities around the country were present for the trial. Reporters strained to catch the testimony as no official transcripts were made. The chaos was so disruptive that Judge Ogden Edwards was forced to summon 50 extra marshals to maintain order. Suspiciously, just a few days before the trial was set to begin, the prosecution lost one of its star witnesses when Marie Stevens, who had heard moans coming from Helen Jewett's room and seen the cloaked figure walk down the hall, mysteriously died. The prosecution opened by calling its first witness, Rosina Townsend. She took the stand and laid out the timeline of events of the night of the murder. Richard Robinson had arrived around 9.30, and went with Helen to her room. Later, she herself had taken champagne upstairs to the couple, around 11. Rosina Townsend then described how she had been awakened and had found the back door open and Helen's lamp on the table downstairs. Then, how she found the burning bed and the body and called for help. Investigators then described what they found at the scene. The hatchet and the cloak from the backyard were presented as evidence. A porter from the dry goods store where Robinson worked was called to identify the hatchet. He testified that the hatchet belonged to him. He used it to open crates and that it had gone missing the weekend of the murder. He also recognized the twine. Robinson's roommate also testified. This time, he said that he had not been in his bed by 11, as Robinson had claimed. A clerk from an apothecary testified that about one week before the murder, a man calling himself Douglas had attempted to purchase arsenic from him, but he refused. In a dramatic moment, the clerk pointed to Robinson and identified him as the man called Douglas. The evidence, though circumstantial, was stacking up against Richard Robinson. But the prosecution 
suffered a blow, and the trial took a turn when the judge ordered that the clerk's testimony was irrelevant and had the testimony thrown out. The defense then called a witness, 33-year-old Robert Furlong, who provided Richard Robinson with an alibi. Robert Furlong testified that on the night in question, Richard Robinson purchased a bunch of cigars from him, smoked while sitting on a barrel and talking and reading a newspaper, and departed at 10.15, saying, I believe I'll go home. I'm tired. The defense also presented the manufacturer of the hatchet, who testified that he had sold 2,500 such hatchets in the city. The twine, the defense theorized, had been added to the hatchet and the cloak after the crime to frame Richard Robinson. The defense floated jealousy among the girls as a motive for the murder. As one of the other girls admitted during questioning that she too had been intimate with Robinson. The defense's basic argument was that the word of prostitutes could not be trusted. They pointed the finger at Rosina Townsend, assaulted her character and implied to the jury that murderous conspiracies are precisely the sort of things that happen in houses of ill repute. In a final blow to the prosecution, 90 letters between Helen Jewett and Richard Robinson that were found in her room were declared by the judge inadmissible. This led the prosecution to rest its case and left the jury and the public to wonder whether the letters might have revealed a motive. Closing arguments lasted ten and a half hours, and at 12.30 that final night, the all-male jury was sent to deliberate. The judge gave the jury its instructions. As most of the witnesses were prostitutes, the judge ordered the jury to disregard their testimony the jury returned less than 15 minutes later and Richard Robinson was found not guilty. The public was outraged and the sensational news coverage continued. After the trial, a reporter asked Richard Robinson if his conscience troubled him. Richard replied, not a bit. Did it appear in court that Helen was murdered by me? He added, Only a bungler would have used a dull hatchet to cut up the girl. I would sooner use a jackknife. By August of 1836, Richard Robinson left New York City to escape the hounding of the press and start fresh in Texas under the name Richard Parmalee. He quickly established himself in the new community and over the next two decades served as deputy clerk of the county court and as clerk of the district court. And by age 21, Richard was initiated as a member of the local Masonic Lodge. He became owner of several successful businesses, married, 
and bought a farm. In 1855, at age 38, Richard Robinson died during an Ohio River steamboat trip. He was laid to rest in Oak Grove Cemetery as Richard Parmalee with the last rites of Master Masons. Robert Furlong, the shop owner who had provided the alibi for Richard Robinson, was rumored to have been paid to give false testimony. Within a year, his business had failed, and in 1838, Furlong committed suicide by jumping off a ship. In 1848, 12 years after the trial, the editor of the National Police Gazette obtained the 90 letters between Richard Robinson and Helen Jewett that had been suppressed at trial. They published them. The first of the letters were romantic and flirtatious, but the most revealing correspondence were dated between August and April of 1836. In the months leading up to her murder, the letters between Helen and Richard had turned to jealousy, anger, and frustration. The Gazette copied the letters and posted them in their windows alongside the murder weapon, which they obtained from the district attorney. Hundreds gathered to view the evidence against Richard Robinson that the jury never got to see. The letters revealed that Richard Robinson had been engaged in some questionable business practices. Nefarious dealings that Helen Jewett had threatened to expose. In his final letter to her, Richard Robinson warned Helen. You are never so foolish as when you threaten me. Keep quiet until I come on Saturday night, and then we will see if we cannot be better friends thereafter. Do not tell any other person I shall come. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute. And now, for early ad-free episodes and bonus content, follow us and subscribe on Himalaya.